use our imaginations together. Uh, you turn on the TV one day, and in an interview, the Prime Minister uh, starts to speak, and he says this. I just want to take this opportunity to thank um, evangelical Christian churches for their love in sharing with us that Jesus is the only way. We want to take this opportunity to, to just to recognise that politics and power aren't the answer, but Jesus is. Imagine you saw that in the news. I imagine you were watching television one night and on the BBC, and there was a documentary on how reliable the Bible is and how we can trust it as our authority. Can you imagine it? Or imagine another situation, you're flicking through the financial times, as I'm sure most of us do from day to day. Um, and there uh, you read of a meeting that is being called for the heads of the banks in the city of London and the uh, different companies there. They want to call people together to pray because they want to admit this. They say, we know we're weak and foolish. We know that we haven't got all the answers. We know that we haven't got the strength in ourselves, but we know that God can help us. And that's why we want to start each day in prayer together. So come and join us. Now, why are those situations so unrealistic? Why do we laugh when I say imagine these situations? Well, because we live in a society, we live in a culture where the gospel's ideals and values are totally ridiculed, where Jesus is dismissed as irrelevant and really the gospel is just laughed on. You know, we, t- we, we are changing our focus from Elijah this morning to Esther. And when we look at Esther, we find that God's people are now in exile. That means that they are no longer uh, in their home country. They were taken about 60 years before Esther, uh, taken from their home country to Babylon. And then Babylon was taken over by the Persians. And so now Esther and everybody we read about in Esther, everything takes place in Persia. So they are away from their home country. They are away from everything they knew. And remember where they used to live, everything around them reminded them of God. All the holidays, the temple, their day-to-day life, everything they did reminded them and pointed them to the truth of God. You think about that. Their feasts, their holy days. But now they were in exile and everything was different. Everything was totally different. You know, it's, uh, it's important for us to realize this. That these people were in a situation where instead of, you know, one God being worshipped, it was, it was, uh, all gods were worshipped. Anything goes. And they were surrounded by it. And we can see how that's helpful for us today, can't we? And this is the question I want us to ask as we come to this passage. What is there in this passage that we had read to us that we can hold on to that will help us as we live in times where where God is just ridiculed and mocked, where Jesus' name is scorned? Because when we look outside of the world today, we can get scared, can't we? When we look outside of the world today, it seems dangerous. And so the temptation is, batten down the hatches, let's stick together uh, because it's dangerous out there. But you know that is not biblical. Jesus in John 17 prays for us. And this is what he prays. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. Jesus prays for us to be in the world, but different. We need to be standing out, standing apart. So what truths are there in this passage about God that will help us as we live in a dark time? As we shine as lights? What truths are there here? Well, we're going to see four things. This isn't exhaustive on this topic, but this is just what we have in this passage before us. And the first truth we're going to see is this. Um, 
God is not afraid of looking defeated. God is not afraid of looking defeated. So we need a bit of a recap, or a, not a recap really, an introduction to what's going on in the book of Esther. We're jumping in at chapter 3, or at the end of chapter 2, and the main characters are, well you guessed it, who the, one of the main characters are, it's Esther. Esther, her cousin, or, or guardian, who brought her up really, Mordecai, and another man we meet uh, a little later on is Haman. They're kind of the main characters in the story. And already, if we'd have read through Esther, we'll have seen that she was taken from her home in in Persia there. She was taken from there because the king was looking for a new queen. So he um, didn't like his old queen anymore, so he got rid of her. And what he basically had was kind of like an X factor, or Britain's got, Persia's got talent, or a Miss uh, Miss Persia kind of situation where he got all the women together and the king would choose the next queen. That's what happened. And who out of all the women did he choose? He chose Esther. So this Jewish girl was now high up in the Persian Empire. She had access, um, although limited, but access to the king. And then, on the other, the other hand, we've got Mordecai, Esther's cousin. He worked, we're told, in the king's gate. Now that doesn't mean he just sat by the gate and twiddled his thumbs. It means he was probably a civil servant of some sort. So he worked for the government. And as we read in chapter 2, end of chapter 2 there, Mordecai sitting at the king's gate, sitting in the office as it were, overhears a conversation that some people are having. And they are sick and tired of the king. So they want to get rid of him. So what they are wanting to do is they want to kill the king. Mordecai overhears this and thinks, well, I need to let the king know about this plot. So he tells Esther, who then tells the king, they find out that this is true. And then Mordecai ends up, this other Jew, ends up saving Uh, the king of Persia's life. And we read at the end there, uh, it was recorded, uh, verse 23 of chapter 2, it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Here it is. You know, one Jew high up, uh, and Mordecai who's done really well, we're thinking things are looking good. But chapter 3, verse 1, is supposed to be a bit of a surprise to us. After these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman, the Agite, the son of Hamadatha, to it and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Here we meet Haman. Now Haman, or Haman, I'm Welsh, that's how I say it. But Haman, he would say that he was, we're going to find out, he's, he's not a nice man. He was arrogant, he was proud, he was full of hatred. Um, and he, went to, he was malicious, he was vindictive, and he ends up being promoted. Now as we read through the flow there, what is supposed to surprise us is this. Mordecai should have been there. Mordecai was the one who should have been at the top. But instead of that, this horrible man, Haman, who ends up getting this plot where he wants to kill and destroy all the Jews, he is the second in command. He is one of the most powerful men in in Persia. And you know, when we get to that point, we're supposed to be thinking, God, what are you doing? God, where are you? Famously in Esther, God's name isn't mentioned. But we need to realize this. He is still uh, in total control of everything that is happening here. But we think like that, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? It seems like this man of evil is flourishing and then these, these people who could have been doing so well, well, they're nowhere. But let's stop before we move on just on this point and, and remember this. Don't we feel like that sometimes in our own lives? God, what are you doing? It looks like you've messed up, God. It looks like we are losing. We're on the losing side. But we need to remember this. 
we have got a God who, no, who is never afraid of looking defeated. In fact, it's in positions of weakness and defeat that it is where God flourishes the most. When it seems darkest of all, it is then that the light of our God and Jesus Christ will shine. You know, in North Korea, in 1948, Kim Il-sung was recruited by Stalin to make North Korea a communist state. And as with many um, places, uh, communist places, they wanted to purge all religions, get rid of them totally. So what did they end up doing? Well, they needed to kill as many as they could. So they killed loads of Christians. They executed many, put many in labor camps and just worked them until they died. And their idea and their goal was crush Christianity. It's hard to get numbers from a country like North Korea. But in 1989, it seems there's probably around 11,000 Christians. And we might think then, well, God, you've... You've lost. Jesus has been defeated, hasn't he? But then you look, by 2004, there's 100,000 Christians. By 2006 to today, there's probably around 200 to 400,000 Christians. You know, it looked like Jesus was defeated, but actually he was working um, and powerful and reigning supreme. God is not afraid of looking defeated. And don't we see that ultimately in Jesus Christ? Think about it. Where does our hope come from? Is it in, in, um, in, you know, when Jesus came, how did he come? He came in weakness. He came as a baby who couldn't even control his hands, couldn't hold up his own neck. That is where our hope is, a weak baby. And what did Jesus come to do? Did he come in a blaze of power? Well, he ended up being in a nowhere town of Nazareth. And he ended up at the, the peak of his career, as it were, was his death on a cross. God, you've lost, haven't you? We've got a God who is never afraid of looking defeated. Because we see three days later, isn't it, what happened? He rose again. Praise God. He rose. He's alive. God specializes in hopeless cases. God specializes in dark situations. The darker the situation, the brighter he can shine. So let me encourage you personally this morning. Think of that nationally, but we can encourage you personally. In your life, does it seem like God is defeated? Are there situations where you think this is hopeless, there is nothing that God can do here? Are you just wondering, what is he up to? Maybe there's a situation in, in your family, you think, what, God, what are you doing here? What are you up to? Maybe there's not, you're in a family and there are no Christians there, and you're just finding it so hard and lonely, and you think, God, it feels like you've lost. Maybe in school you feel totally on your own. You feel weak. Everybody seems to be against you and against Christianity, and it's easy just to, to melt into the background. Just feel like you're on the losing side. In work, there's somebody who mocks you relentlessly for what you believe. You need to be encouraged. However dark your situation, God specializes in hopeless cases. He is not afraid of looking defeated. I heard a story in, um, a few years ago about a missionary couple called David and Sevilla Flood. In 1921, they went to the Belgian Congo. They had a real burden for that area and a specific tribe. But that, the chief of that tribe wouldn't let them in uh, to speak to anybody. And their only contact with this, was this, with this young lad who came to sell them food. Now, it, it, uh, after a while, Sevilla, the, the lady, she led this boy to Jesus. He became a Christian. But then Sevilla became pregnant. She gave birth to the little girl, Aggie. But as she gave birth, she died. Uh, David, her husband, dug this crude grave, buried her his wife there in the Congo, and gave uh, the young girl, Aggie, to another couple. And he said, uh, I'm, I'm going, God has ruined my life. And he went back to Sweden. 
Um, that baby ended up in the hands of another Swedish couple who then died. And then they, she got passed on to an American couple who ended up taking her uh, back to America. Now, at that situation, you think, God, what are you doing? Here's a couple who have given their lives for you, and it looks like you've lost. It looks like you, you don't know what you're doing. It looks like the gospel has been defeated. A few years later, um, out of nowhere, really, in Aggie, the little girl's mailbox, she'd grown up now, and in her mailbox was a Swedish magazine that was a religious magazine. And there was a photo inside that shocked her, because it said her mother's name, Sevilla Flood. And it was on a, a, in front of a grave and a white cross. And this is what the article said. Missionaries came to our area long ago. A white baby was born. A young mother died. One little African boy was led to Christ. And that boy grew up and built a school in the village. Gradually, he won his students to Christ. The children led their parents to Christ. And even the chief became a Christian. Aggie went and found her father after a long search. Uh, she told him, look, today... There are 600 African people serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call of God in your life. As apparently David's heart softened, he'd still hard towards God, and there he softened. He turned back to God and died uh, a few weeks later. Aggie eventually met that African boy. Um, he was then superintendent of the National Church of Zaire, um, which was, had about 110,000 believers as part of their church. At one point, it looks like, God, what are you doing? But he's not afraid of looking defeated. He's not afraid of taking a situation that looks totally hopeless and making it shine with his glory. Where does he seem defeated in your life? Turn to him this morning. We've got hope in ungodly times. There is hope in a God who is not afraid of looking defeated. That's the first thing. The second thing I want us to see is this. God's warnings, especially about sin, are for our good. God's warnings against sin for our good. Right, back into the passage now. Evil Haman has just been promoted. He's the second most powerful man in the empire. And the command has gone out from the king. Um, everybody must bow down to Haman. That shows he was probably a nasty piece of work. Because this is the kind of culture where um, to bow down to people was just instinctive. You don't have to tell people to bow down. It was instinctive, but he, obviously nobody really liked him. So the king put out this, uh, this uh, command, you must bow to him. Um, but look at the end of verse 2. All the king's servants who were um, at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Now, the big question to ask there is, well, why didn't he bow down? And initially, as we read that, we might think, well, he didn't bow down because he didn't want to worship uh, another human. But there's a few problems with that because we see that uh, in the rest of the book of Esther, Esther and Haman have no problem bowing down before the king. So it's not an idolatry issue. Then what is it? Is it jealousy because Haman got the spot that Mordecai should have had? Well, no, we don't see that in the passage either, do we? But when we look at the passage, the passage gives us the answer. Who is Haman? What information are we told about him? We are told that he was an Agite. Can you see that? In verse 1. Well, that's a strange thing to tell us, isn't it? You know, he was a, defend, a descendant of Agag. He was an Amalekite, and that is the answer. You think, well, great, that clears it up. <laughs> Haman was an Amalekite. That, that's brilliant. Well, now, let's think of the history of what does that mean? Well, the Amalekites were an ancient army, uh, enemy of Israel. Uh, when Israel were taken out of Egypt, they were pounced on by this nation, the Amalekites. Uh, and God said at that point, I'm going to destroy this evil nation. I'm going to get rid of every memory of them. 
So at the time of King Saul, God sent King Saul to destroy this army, to get rid of them, um, so that this nation could be taken out. So he was using Saul as his um, instrument for judgment. But instead of Saul getting rid of that nation completely, what does he do? Do you remember the story? He was told to get rid of every person and every animal. But what does Saul do? Well, he keeps the best, doesn't he? Remember, he didn't quite kill all the animals. He kept some of them for himself. And he didn't kill the king. Who was the king? Well, it was Agag. He was um, Haman's kind of great, 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 great grandfather. Saul didn't obey God. And at the time, you might have thought, well, it's not such a big deal. But when Mordecai steps into the seas and Haman stepping into the sea, and when he sees this is our ancient enemy, there is no way he can bow down to him. Not somebody who we should have dealt with years ago. Mordecai tells us in verse 4, he's not bound down because he's a Jew. He's not doing this because he is an ancient enemy. And, and it explains as well Haman's overreaction to wanting to destroy the whole Jews. Just for uh, Mordecai not bowing down. This was a chance for him to get his own back on the hated Jews of his race. He hated them. See, God wanted his people to obey him back in 1 Samuel 15. Wanted them to destroy this nation. Knew the danger they posed. But Saul thought, well, I'll sort of obey. I'll obey a little bit, but not the whole way. And we see the consequences being reaped um, down the generations later on. You see the warning that there is for us, for us here. You know, as a, a, the Jews reading this plot of Esther, they'd have seen it. They'd have thought, oh no, he's an Amalekite. We should have dealt with that years ago. And now here he is, centre stage. He's going to destroy us all. There's a warning, isn't there? God is serious about sin. And he wants us lovingly, uh, he wants to tell us lovingly, stay away. As we've heard already this morning, is not our friend. We can think, well, it can't be that serious. You know, can we just play about a little bit with sin? But time and time again in the Bible, we get warning after warning, God saying, flee, flee. If you're sitting at home and um, you glance over your sofa and there on your sofa is a cushion that's on fire, what do you do? Do you say, phew, at least it's only the cushion. At least it's not the sofa. You know, oh, that's a, that was a close one. Of course you don't. You know the nature of fire is to consume. And so you are going to put that fire out as soon as you can and find out how on earth just a cushion could be on fire in your living room. But you're going to deal with it, don't you? And in the same way, the nature of sin is to consume. As we're told in Genesis 4, its nature is to, it wants you, it wants to have you. It wants to control you. And we need to put it to death. We can think, can we, it's not that bad. Sin is serious. Another thing we can think about sin is this. I feel like I'm missing out. You know, here is everybody else outside. You know, everybody else, they're all having the fun. But here I am, a Christian. I have to say no, and I have to obey God. And deep down, we can sort of think God is holding something back from us. He doesn't really want what's best for me. Is there an area where you're tempted to disobey God because deep down, you think he's holding something back from you? You think that... Oh, if I just had that, then, then I'd be happy. What is it that you think God is holding back from you? Because that is exactly the same lie that Adam and Eve fell for in the garden, isn't it? That we, they, they started to uh, think that God's, uh, doubt his motives. So when Satan came and said, God doesn't want you to eat of that, because if you do, you'll be like him. You see what Satan's doing there? God's holding back from you. He doesn't want you to have good things. God isn't really good. Have you fallen for that lie again in your life? Is there something in your life that you think, oh, if only I had that. 
You see, we start to think sin isn't that serious, and actually it's good. But the Bible, time and time again, comes to us and exposes sin for what it really is. And that's what we need to be doing, is reminding ourselves every day. We're not missing out. You know, you're not missing out by following Jesus. Jesus says, if you come to me, you'll have life in its fullness. It is other people that are missing out. We have life in its fullness. We have Jesus Christ. We have the riches of the gospel. Don't let sin go unchecked in your life. Don't think we're missing out. Don't think it's not serious. I read this story that was a, an illustration of how dangerous sin is. There's a sad ending to this. It's a serious story, even though it might, might sound playful to start. Okay? I've said this illustration before, and I could see people thinking, oh, that sounds nice. And then when we come to the end, they're devastated. So just a bit of a warning. Okay? Um, I don't know what you know about hippos. Um, there you go, hippos. Yeah, everything. Oh, smiley hippos. Yeah, they're fun. They've got giant canine teeth. They kill more people each year than lions, elephants, leopards, buffaloes, and rhinos combined. And they can move at speeds of about 30 miles an hour, despite weighing up to three ton. So that's fast. Something coming at you 30 miles an hour is, uh, weighing three ton is scary. But there was a man in South Africa called Marius Elts. He was an army major, and he had a pet hippo. Now, everybody warned him against um, having this pet hippo. Humphrey, he called him. He, and everybody said, you can't tame him. He is wild. But this is what he said. Humphrey's like a son to me. He's just like a human. There's this relationship between me and Humphrey that's what some people don't understand. They think you can only have a relationship with dogs and cats and domestic animals. But I have a relationship with the most dangerous animal in Africa. I've warned you about the ending. His body was found, um, he was killed by his pet hippo, found submerged in water. You see, he thought he had a special relationship. Do you think that maybe you're the only person here who can handle your temptation by just dipping into it? Do you think you're the only person? I've got this special relationship. God is lovingly warning you this morning, flee. Don't mess about. It's fire. It's going to consume you. But you know, warning isn't enough for us, is it? We need more than a warning. We need our hearts to see that Jesus and following him is greater. So where can we go to unmask sin and to see that God's motives for us are true and right and he wants what's best for us? Where do we go? We go to where we've already been this morning, isn't it? We go to the cross. Because there we see sin unmasked. There we see sin in all its horror. There we see how, what sin did to Jesus. All of our sin laid on him suffering the rejection and the alienation from his father, who he'd only ever known his smile. He'd only ever known from eternity past. That's all he'd known was his smile from his father. The, big, the longest people know each other, isn't it? The deeper the relationship. So you see a married couple that have been married for 60, 70 years, and it melts your heart because their love is so deep and rich. The love between the father and the son was from eternity to eternity. And yet on that cross, that relationship was ripped apart. Jesus only ever knew the smile of his father, but then on the cross he looked up and saw his wrath and his frown. And he faced that for you. He faced that because that is what sin deserves. Sin is horrendous. It, 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 we need to flee from it. But you see as well that God wants what's best for you. By obeying him, we're not missing out. By obeying him, he's not holding anything back from us. He wants what's best for you. Of course he does. Look at the cross. And maybe today you're thinking, yeah, but I've, I've messed up too much. I've gone too far. You don't know what I've done. I don't know what you've done. God does. And he still says, come. Come to the cross and know forgiveness this morning. Don't run away. 
Satan would love you to think that you are the only person who's done that and that you are the exception to the rule. Grace doesn't apply to you. Come this morning back to him and see Jesus on the cross. He's doing it for you. Don't run away. Run to him. Whatever you've done, yes, even that can be forgiven by Jesus' blood on the cross. God's warnings are for our good. God is not afraid of looking defeated. The third thing is this. God is working out his purposes. Now, there's an overlap with the first point here, um, because really this is the main thing we see in Esther throughout. God working out his purposes behind the scenes. Even when it doesn't seem like he is, he is ruling and reigning. So Mordecai, as we've seen, refuses to bow down. So Haman sees this as an opportunity to get his own back on this, this, um, these Jews that he hates because of the history with his people. He's, this is his chance to destroy them all. So what does he do? Well, he thinks, right, I've got to get the king on side. So how does he get the king on side? Look at verse 8. He has a bit of a meeting. Haman said to the king, um, King Xerxes, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Now here, Haman is, is exaggerating. You know, here are the Jews, he's saying, they hate you, king. They have no profit to you at all. You need to get rid of them. He flowers, use flowery language to say, you know, they've got these different laws and they, they are against you. Now, he's using part truth there, isn't he? Of course they've got different laws. But they're not against the king. In the last chapter, we've already seen that Mordecai saved the king's life. Of course he's not against the king. In Jeremiah 28, you can read how Jeremiah the prophet told them to live in exile. Did he say you're to hate the king? You're to be horrible to everybody and and do nothing for their good? Well, no, listen to what he said in Jeremiah 28. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you to exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. See what he's saying there? Pray for them, love them, care for them. But Haman, well, he's twisting uh, part truths to manipulate the king. And then what he does in verse 9, he says, Look, king, if you let me do this, if you let me destroy these people, I'll give you 10,000 talents. That is apparently um, half, um, half the annual tax revenue of the whole Persian Empire for one year. So that's a lot of money in a rich empire. And he's saying, I'll give you that money. You see, Haman is manipulating his way to get control so that he can destroy the Jews. And what does the king do? Verse 10 the king hands over his signet ring. Now, for us, we might think, well, you know, what are they, why is he swapping jewellery? What difference does that make? But a signet ring in the Persian Empire, that was whoever held that had the authority. Whoever held that could call the shots. So here he is, evil Haman, calling the shots. I'm thinking, what is God doing? You know, he shouldn't be the one in control. Who has real authority here? Verse 11. The king said to Haman, the money is, given, uh, money is given to you. The people also do with them as it seems good to you. Haman, it's over to you. So then the decree is put out in verse 13. Letters were sealed by the couriers sent to all the provinces with instructions to destroy, kill, and annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day think well what is going on god are you really working out your purposes in this but as we read through we see there are clues it's hard to see in one chapter if you read the whole book you will see it so clearly but we are given clues in this chapter god just still in control 
So we'll look at verse 7, the very important verse in the whole book of Esther. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, um, not the car, 1S, uh, in the twelfth year of King Xerxes, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots before Haman. So what they're doing is they're casting lots uh, to find out which month are we going to kill all the Jews. And do you know how, where it ended up? It could have been the next day. It could have been the next month. But instead, it is almost a year away. So instead of being the next month, we see that God kind of overrules in such a way that they've got a year until this happens. You see just a, a glimpse there of God saying, it's okay, I'm in control here. I am given a lot of time to work things out. And in that time, we see then that Esther um, helps and saves, we will probably see later on. But do you see, God was in control of even a lot being cast. And at the end of Esther, they have a big party to celebrate what is told in Proverbs 16. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. That's what they celebrate. God was even in control of the lot being cast. Haman's there thinking, I've got the signet ring. I've got the word from the king to do whatever I want. But all the way, God was working out his purposes. God can use all things for his glory, whether it's evil Haman or anything. He can use what he wants for his purposes. Isn't that what we see at the end of Genesis where uh, uh, Joseph says to his brothers, you meant throwing me into the pit for evil. You meant selling me to Egypt for evil. But God, he meant it for good. God can use anything for his glory. I'm sure you've heard this story, but there was a Christian lady who was very hungry, needed food, and so she prayed. Um, God, give me this day my daily bread. Her neighbour was an atheist. She'd overheard uh, her neighbour praying. And so she thought, right, I'm going to get my own back here. So what she did was she went to the shop and bought two loaves of bread and put them on the doorstep. Um, The Christian lady, a few uh, minutes later, opens the door, sees these two loaves of bread and thinks, wow, God has provided for me. This is amazing. She was so excited. The atheist couldn't help but come forward and say, God didn't do that. God had nothing to do with it. I bought those loaves, and this is what the lady said. God answered my prayer, even though he used the devil to do it. (laughs) You see the point? God overruling, even using darkness and and, um, wrong motives he can use for his glory. That's on a small scale. On on a big scale, I was talking to a friend a few years ago who who used to be missionaries in Tibet. Tibet used to be inaccessible. There was no way you could get to some of uh, these places because they were so hard to get to. But now if you go to Tibet, there's airports, there's roads, uh, suddenly it's accessible. Now how did Tibet become accessible? Or more accessible, I know there's still be parts that are hard. How did it become accessible? One word, communism. And because of communism it is now possible to get the gospel into areas it never would have got into before. God uses even humans of this world for his purposes, for his glory. So as we are living in ungodly times, let's not think that, we, um, that God is out of control. He rules. He reigns. He is victorious. We can be confident as we step out trusting in him. God is working his ways and his purposes out. The throne of heaven is occupied. Do you realize that this morning? It is occupied. Here's the final point. Very briefly, God uses weak things for his glory. We've just seen God's working out his purposes. But at the end of chapter 3, um, it's a very dramatic chapter, isn't it? But it's quite hopeless. You know, here they are. The, um, uh, the Jews are about to be annihilated. The king and Haman just sit down and get drunk. Everybody else is confused. That's what happens at the end. And we're left thinking, well, God, what are you going to do? 
Where is the hope of God's people here? Where's the hope? Well, do you know, amazingly, it is in, in one person in this book, isn't it? It's Esther. She is the hope. But that is a shocking thing. For us, it's not. Maybe you know the story. Or living in this day and age, it's not such a big hope, but a big surprise. But in this day and age, which is a male-dominated society, for a woman to be the person who would um, kind of hold the power, that is, that is unheard of. You know, women were so looked down on and, and, and just thought of as nothing. And yet God uses the weakness of Esther. Their hope is in one who is high up, being willing to risk her high position so that they could be rescued and saved. Here's just a quick point as we close. As we look at our world, as our times, where is our hope? Where is the hope of your work colleagues and um, the, you know, your flatmates and your neighbours and your families? Where is your, their hope? Well, it's in one person, isn't it? In Jesus Christ. The one who was high up but was willing to Give up his high position. Give it all up to rescue and save us. And you think, well, that's so, it seems so foolish, doesn't it? Do you think, is that all we've got living in ungodly times? What's the answer, basically? Jesus. I think, is that all we've got? A, a little baby? A, a carpenter? A man who died on a cross? But you see, our hope is in the weakness of Jesus and in the weakness of the gospel. And that applies, the shape of who our saviour is applies our kind of methodology, if you want. It applies how we do it. So what is our hope in? Our hope isn't in kind of flashy um, marketing. It's in the foolishness of preaching. We keep preaching. It seems weak, it seems foolish, but we keep doing it because that is what God's called us to. Our hope isn't in big, flashy personalities, but in you and me sharing our lives and sharing the gospel with our neighbours and work colleagues and flatmates and people and friends in school. It's not impressive, is it? But God uses the weak things. God uses the foolish things. Where is the hope of this world? Where is the hope of our communities that we live in? Their hope is in us getting on our knees and pleading to God to save. That's the hope. Us praying, us preaching, us sharing the gospel. Is that all you've got? We've got Jesus Christ, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, who never loses his power, who is as powerful today as he always has been, and we hold out him. It may seem foolish to the world, but in the, in, in the eyes of God, it is the power of God for salvation. Jesus confirms everything we've looked at this morning, doesn't he? How, is, how do we remember that God is not afraid of looking defeated? We look at the cross. It looked like he'd lost, but he'd won. How do we unmask sin? We look at Jesus on the cross and there we see sin is horrendous and God is for us, not against us. How do we know God is working out his purposes even when he doesn't seem like he does? The resurrection of Jesus proves it. And how can we remember that? Do we really keep preaching Jesus even when nobody seems to be listening? God uses weak and foolish things for his glory. Living in ungodly times, the answer is Jesus. The answer is Christ. Our hope is in him.